Well, you, 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 the first thing you do, you think you make yourself up to be this character because you live in that life. So in some way, you kind of you feel like you have a buffer for that transition because you, you know you're going to be arrested, go to jail in some way. At least you're thinking at some point that could happen. Um, so you're doing all the little extreme things, not become too attached to anything um, because you're going to go through that uh, phase. Um, but you never prepare for it. There's nothing in the world you could do to be prepared for what that experience is like. Uh, the first thing, you know, I knew I didn't want to stay in the street. You know, I knew it was over because I did everything I thought I could to get away anyway. So it was nothing else I could come up with that I could, you know, be slick or uh, uh, maneuver around. So at that point, I, you know, it didn't work out without all of the drug use, all of the drug dealing. So it was, at that point, it was over for me even being in the street. Um, but getting getting centers, you know, you're numb. You you have no idea what that's like. You know, you you hear it. You know, you you try and face it and deal with it. But you know, it's a minute by minute thing. You know, day by day thing, and you you just never know. Um, but for myself, it was it was the beginning of the end uh, for me. Welcome to episode eighty six of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized, transformational social impact and to shine a light on all the good happening in a world often hyper-focused on the negative. Today's episode features my friend Terrence Gallman, the CEO of Gig Group, author and film producer. Terrence had a tough upbringing in rural South Carolina that ultimately led to his spending 12 years in prison. Despite that, he maintained a positive attitude and took that time to learn, ultimately landing a job on Wall Street after his release. I'm currently part of a team working with him to adapt his autobiography, Finding Me, into a feature film. Through his company, Gig Group, he seeks to provide a wide range of high-exposure, resume-building jobs for underprivileged communities while providing an opportunity for those communities to participate and integrate in the global and domestic financial markets. Terrence and I discuss his move at a young age from the country to a trailer park and how that ultimately led to his getting caught up in crime and drug addiction. We discuss his choice to go to rehab at age 19, the business he opened afterwards, his time in prison, and how he maintained a positive attitude there, and how he was able to learn from his experience and flourish once he got out. Here is Terrence Gallman on People Are the Answer. Terrence, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Well, thank you, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. Likewise, really excited to have you, and it'd be great if you could start off by just telling the audience who you are, where you're based, and what your current role is. I'm Terrence Gorman. I'm from South Carolina, Prosperity, South Carolina. I'm currently managing director, CEO of Gear Group, Gorman Investment Group. I'm currently uh, executive producing a film inspired by my story titled No Right Way. I have several published titles, uh, and excited to be here with my a uh, supportive uh, executive producer, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to dig in on the project that we're working on together. Um, and, and thanks for sharing that. And, you know, in life generally, what would you say motivates you? Uh, humanitarian efforts. Um, I'm a big people person. You know, I am an underdog person and I'm just motivated to, to help people. I'm inspired by other people. Generally, I'm a networker. Absolutely. I've, I've seen it. 
a hundred percent. And, uh, you know, I told you I was going to go this way, you know, normally I start off digging into people's childhoods when we're starting the interview, but you know, no right way, the project that we're working on together, that's about your life. Um, you know, I think we should start there because it does cover some of your uh, childhood. And so maybe you could start off by just telling the audience what No Right Way is and about the book Finding Me that it's based on. Well, let's begin with the, the great part, right? Uh, no Right Way is a screenplay that's been adapted from uh, my autobiography, Finding Me. Screenplay written by and with Clay Ayers, um, longtime writer for Quentin Tarantino. Um, Clay is an exceptional writer. So, you know, given the caveat up front, um, is inspired by my story, Finding Me. Finding Me is a story that I wrote um, while incarcerated, facing a long lengthy term of incarceration. And um, just wanted to realize, you know, how I got to where I was and what those influences were like in my life. And I started journaling what that rediscovery was like for me. Um, I didn't start out to be a writer. I started out journaling um, because I thought it was important that I wanted other people to know, you know, where I was and what I was thinking, how I was feeling to prevent other people from finding themselves in similar situations, especially at a young age in life. And, uh, you know, when I realized once I got to federal prison that I was no match for that environment and time was not what I, you know, thought I made it up to be and the character I made myself up to be when I was in the street was just no match for that. Uh, lifestyle and for the length of term of incarceration, I would be there. So I started, you know, attempt to face my fears, just wanted to reach out and identify with, you know, things that had influenced my life. And, and there was nothing there. You know, I had nothing in me, you know, to help me sustain while I was in prison. So I had to reach out uh, to read and find things I could do to kind of help me and, you know, facing you know, a long term, um, you're going to identify with leaders, you know, that you've heard about over the years. And Dr. Martin Luther King was one of those leaders and one of the first books that I read, you know, and learned what his life was like facing the fears that he had faced. Uh, that became the inspiration for the book that I wrote, Finding Me. And then it just became, quote, uh, and relating to those quotes. And, you know, that turned out the book, Finding Me. And that's the subject of the film that we have um, that's written and inspired by um my story, but written with clay ears. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for that. And, um, you know, it digs, I've read the script, you know, I haven't gotten the chance to read the full book yet. Um, but you know, obviously the script gives me a lot of insight into your life. And, um, I know you had a pretty difficult childhood. Was that childhood in prosperity, South Carolina? It started there. Yeah, it did. And so, yeah, tell me what it was like growing up. I know, you know, it was a tough childhood. You were forced into crime. Um, you know, what can you share about that experience? Well, I didn't start out that way. I grew up in the rural areas of, of prosperity, and it was just a great environment growing up. I grew up in the early 70s, so we was, um, you know, had our own community in the rural areas. Um, you know, we didn't see any problems, you know, and the ones we had, we didn't know. Um, so I was kind of isolated early on, um, just growing up around my, you know, uncles and aunts, and I'm the oldest grandchild, so I was like the little brother, so I got a chance to you know, to hang out uh, with them and watch, you know, what their lifestyles were like. It was just hardworking people, uh, arrogant age. I wouldn't even say industrial age because, you know, my mother went into a plywood factory, you know, right, you know, when I was four or five years old. Um, but the more the arrogant age, so we did a lot of logging, farming, uh, just grew up, you know, off the land and around the land. 
Um, so I, I didn't necessarily have challenges there because I didn't know what the more, the, the, the more uh, developed communities was doing. But I moved into the trailer park uh, shortly after that. My mom was able to buy us a single-wide mobile home. I was about seven or eight years old, so right after kindergarten. Uh, and that was different. You know, th I got exposed there, you know, because everybody had a household next to each other. And, you know, that's when I started to go to town and get raised up you know, with some of my neighbors and things of that nature. So it did get to be challenging there simply because, um, you know, even being in that in that era, we were still excluded from a lot of what the more developed uh, parts of the community would be doing. And um, so the trailer park offered me a community within itself, socially, culturally, but it did not in integrate me into mainstream society. Yeah, I mean, that must have been a big change for you moving there. Um, and I, I know that you had a good relationship with your grandparents. You also had a, a rough relationship with, um, a stepfather. I don't know, you know, how much you want to get into it, but just to, you know, kind of give the audience an idea of, you know, the, the foundation of the story. Well, I have it kind of fast, uh, you know, growing up in the trailer park, um, you know, was, we had our own culture and only com own, our own community there, but, you know, you know, we were separate, but, you know, we're still kind of you know, network with each other. And so I got introduced to a lot of the more teenage uh, atmosphere there. And of course, I was coming up from the rural areas. I wanted to fit in with the friends, my friends who was already living there. So they was a lot faster. And, you know, so at that point, we began to just hang out. Um, so it made me less accustomed to, to, to separate. Uh, it made me want to kind of find a way to want to fit in. And so I, I started, you know, just drinking the little beers we see left over from, you know, the older guys in the community and, you know, just experiment, you know, with those things. Um, so my mother at the time I worked, she was working and she met my stepfather actually where she was working uh, in the plywood factory and kind of uh, moved really fast with, you know, their relationship. And, and because I was hanging out with teenagers at the time, I was a little bit more experimental. We had tried marijuana and some of the things. We would just really be mimicking marijuana. We had this little thing called rabbit tobacco. So we would go roll it up like it was marijuana. So, of course, we was already primed for when we would get our chance to really get marijuana, we was going to do it, right? And so, you know, I was already smoking marijuana. I was a teenager about the time. And so him and my mother, you know, hit it off really fast. And, you know, they got married. And... Uh, but he was a, a drug addict and I was moving pretty fast at the time. And, you know, he was more from the city. So um, we ended up going to Connecticut uh, to do some moving some furniture and things of that nature. So it was a country bar first time, you know, in the north. And I said, well, look, we already trying marijuana down south. And now we're seeing this, you know, this really fast paced moving city life. We only here for a weekend. So why not? Right. I didn't know it at the time, but thought I was actually being introduced to marijuana, but I was being introduced to crack cocaine. Um, and unbeknown to me that my stepfather was already an addict. And so uh, being in that environment, you know, he introduced me to it. And I didn't know it at the time. We was in the back of a U-Haul. It was black, dark, 5 o'clock in the morning, right? Um, I think it was in Bridgeport, Connecticut at the time. So it was it was real rough, even at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, right? Um, and so I ended up using, didn't know it. Um, but, you know, didn't know it, 15, 16, I think I was 16 at the time, uh, had no idea uh, how addicted the drug was. And, you know, by the time I used one time there um, and came home, you know, I was already into the marijuana lifestyle and ended up, you know, becoming a crack. Well, I didn't become a crack, instantly became a crack addict, started using crack at 16, 17 years old. Uh, and from there, um, I used sold marijuana, eventually crack to support my habit and 
just got high from 16 to about 19 years old, ended up in rehab, uh, 20, 20 years old. So I was about three and a half years a crack at it. So, yeah, I mean, that's a really tough way to be introduced to drugs, to get hooked on them. It's uh, super sad to hear about. And, um, you know, you mentioned going to rehab at a young age. How did you make such a responsible decision at the age of, I think it was 19, right, that you went to rehab? Well, let, let me go back and tell you how that became to be. Of course, immediately when I, you know, got addicted, started using crack, uh, of course, I was no longer at that point able to function in school. And just say that uh, by the time I started, I got introduced to crack, uh, I was already on the verge of not continuing with school because it was marijuana. But at the same time, I was always a worker. So I, I had a great work ethic. I grew up around my stepfather. So I was always in my office. So I always would work. So I was actually uh, became a teenage father in high school. And I started with marijuana. So when I went to New York, uh, Connecticut, and actually started Usually when I came home, I immediately had to support that habit. So I just started working a lot, you know, trying to, you know, get, you know, a, a job that like in the mill, I ended up going to work in the textile mill. Um, so at 16, I was already, you know, caught myself being 20, 21 years old. And from there, um, so I was no longer in school at the time. I had actually went to job court, got my GED, came home. So I'm, I'm 16 years old with my GED, but I'm in the streets. Um, and so there was a sense of taking all the shortcuts in my life early on, but I still had some sense of being around those people who was actually doing the right thing. All my cousins, all my friends were still going to school. You know, they was eventually going to graduate. I was in the streak of crack at it, right? And so I would still would see them in the morning going to school while I'm been out all night getting high using drugs. So at some point, um, after like a three year binge, I owed everyone. You know, there was nowhere else to turn. You know, looking in the mirror, I knew I would die an addict. And, of course, uh, you know, crackhead had have pride, you know. So at some point I knew I didn't want to go out and be found, you know, after having an overdose or a heart attack or something uh, from drug use. So I knew at that point I, if I didn't get help, I was going to die an addict. Um, so I went to um, rehab. A funny thing to, to share with you, I, I went to rehab, never – didn't even know what that environment was like. I just knew I needed help, right? Uh, and the, when I went to rehab, they actually uh, rejected me. Uh, and even though I went there as a you know, young person, they actually thought you know, I was functionable. Um, and they sent me back saying, look, you can't come here unless you got like insurance and it's like $1,000 a day. Luckily, I did have a job at the time. And I was able to go back and talk to my employers about, you know, hey, I need help. Uh, of course, I didn't tell them exactly what I needed help for. Um, but you know, by the time the counselors at the rehab center talked to the to, to the employer, uh, human resource department, they was able to get me admitted. Um, and so it was about saving my face. That you know, for well, first of all, was I couldn't pay anybody anymore either. And, you know, I owed the drug addict, drug users. You know, so it wasn't nothing I could do at that point. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's pretty incredible that you chose to get help and. You know, just to, to circle back a little bit, you know, you mentioned the first time you did crack cocaine being told it was marijuana. Um, so when you came back, like, were you aware of that? And that's what you were seeking out crack cocaine or, you know, just especially because I'm, you know, I'm involved in, in cannabis and drug policy and, you know, find specifically marijuana to be useful and helpful, obviously not the case for crack cocaine. So I'm just curious, like, what path you were on and, and you know, what eventually led you to... Uh, 
to rehab? Yeah, I wasn't told it was marijuana. I was in uh, Connecticut. We was actually seeking to, to buy marijuana. And in the process of buying marijuana, uh, we wasn't from there. So, of course, you got to make a connection. We only had a couple hours to make the connection. So we, we actually um, was not able to make the connection with marijuana. Actually, we did. But the marijuana wasn't like a real potent source that we had better in the South. So um, my stepfather, who was a crack addict, which we didn't know at the time, um, we used to put marijuana and hash in these little pipes. So actually, um, he actually put the uh, crack in where we would normally have the hash of marijuana. So I didn't even know I was actually smoking crack. I didn't choose to. I was actually being introduced to it and didn't even know. And that's the sort of way that addicts get other people to use too. Like, hey, try this. Uh, you'll like this, right? Uh, and and so I, I, that was, I had no defense for that. Yeah, no, understood. That's really, really awful to hear. And um, But, you know, back to, to going into rehab, I know you, you met a really close friend that ended up becoming your business partner there. You know, how did that come about? Well, actually, we worked together. Uh, we was really, we was, we was, we was, we was, you know, coworkers, but we was also friends, you know, we spent a lot of time working together on the, on the jobs and things of that nature. Uh, and he actually, um, was a part of my life when I went to rehab, Cause, you know, you, you know, they don't necessarily, people around you don't necessarily use, but y'all still functional, you know, in a relationship. And so I ended up in rehab and, you know, he was just one of the people that couldn't believe it because we hung out like every day. And he was like, man, I had no idea, you know, you was a drug addict, you know, you was a crack addict. Um, and so he just ended up, you know, being a real supportive friend. Well, he wasn't supportive in the sense of knowing how not to become codependent of what I was doing, but a friend in the sense that he was somebody I could call and talk to. And so, you know, we stayed really close, you know, because I was only there for a few weeks. Um, we stayed really close and immediately I got out and I knew he was someone that I could be around that wasn't an addict, wasn't using that would support me in my recovery. And so so we ended up spending more time together. Plus, we had a great relationship before I went to rehab. And so we parted a lot, went to nightclubs every night because that's one place I could function at night because you're high, you know, so you don't have to worry about it in the daytime. You're not going to go around people who don't use drugs in the daytime, you know, but you could be around anybody at night, you know, because they can't see your eyes. They don't. Kind of see all of the the habits and things you you actually pick up. Yeah, so you you and this friend ended up working together, starting a business. Yeah, we opened up uh, a bar, a sports bar. Um, you know, because at the time I was trying to you know work a lot of hours and pay people back that are old, and um, you know I wanted a, a lot more freedom, you know, a lot more flexibility, and we ended up opening a club because. You know, we were, I wasn't getting high now. We're together every day, so we may as well, you know, go in business together. So we owned up a sports bar and, um, you know, still money now and not coming fast enough because as soon as I open the door, you know, you got the dealers saying, hey, man, where's my money? You know, you owe me and all of the people I owe for. And I was on, I was getting high for three years, so I damaged a lot of relationships. I owed a lot of people a lot of things. And so I took that business, you know, money. Um, and which course I didn't know anything about business, didn't even know anything about, you know, being in business, didn't know anything about, you know, how that was supposed to work. So I just took the money I was working, making and the money from the business and I started hustling marijuana again and I got right back into trying to cover all those debts that I actually had. And self-esteem got tied to that. 
and we just kept hustling. I kept hustling. He actually just kept watching me hustle, and we was close, but he was more of a personal supporter friend and wasn't someone who was associated with me selling marijuana and selling crack and things of that nature again. Yeah, so it seemed like the the only way to really start paying back your debts was to, you know, be doing illicit business um despite having, you know, the legal business as well. Um and that that makes sense. I mean, it's uh it's it's unfortunately a very tough situation and um you know, what you ultimately did end up, you know, getting sentenced to prison. What was sort of the the downfall? What what led to that? Well, it was easy, you know, um you know, when you're, you don't see yourself when you're in the streets and when you're doing things to get away with, but everybody else can see it, no. You know, so a young black man opened up a business, sports bar downtown, Main Street, Newberry, that was a no-brainer for them. You know, I wasn't in their social circles. Uh, you know, they don't, they never saw me in the business alliance to champ things I had no idea about. You know, I'm just a hustler and thinking that I see a for rent sign, I could just go put a deposit in go buy things, get in there, said they know about business license, retail license, taxes, you know, so it was really easy, you know, they 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 had the, the law enforcement on me the day I actually uh, went looking in the window for the place for the most part, right, uh, because the neighbors, you know, businesses are actually trying to protect their business and the integrity of the whole downtown area, but so I actually, um, it was over before it began for me. Um, and the, the street money, you know, the hustling money uh, wasn't necessarily tied to the business money, but the business was almost a, still part of my self-esteem, trying to, you know, get away from the streets, trying to get away from the drug use and drug dealing, you know, so almost like a self-esteem um, thing. And, you know, just a really like what they say when the fish get out of the uh, frying pan into the fire. So I got out of the streets and got right into the fire by going downtown, opening up a business. So it was it was over, you know, when I first got. Understood. And, um, you know, remind me about your sentencing. You know, I have a note. I don't know if this is accurate based on some conversations I've heard, but that you were sentenced to 19 years. Yeah, I, was, I played out actually 16 to 19. Uh, and the guidelines, you know, is where you, you know, they find a base and then you get enhanced. So then the enhancements is how you get the rest of the time. And the enhancements are based on your prior convictions. And of course, you know, it was really easy for me, uh, to have marijuana convictions, simple possession, those type of things, because it's like, we didn't think nothing of it, you know, especially, um, you know, being an addict, you know, not that I had those, but I'm just saying it, some of the little things that I had that I overlooked became part of that sentencing phase. And, yeah, so my minimum was 16 to 19 and uh, ended up with a 27-year sentence. However, um, 16 to 19 was what I pled to. And, you know, what were you thinking when you got that sentence, you know, and what was your feeling going into prison? Well, you, 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 the first thing you do, you think you make yourself up to be this character because you live in that life. So in some way, you kind of feel like you have a buffer for that transition because you, you know you're going to be arrested, go to jail in some way. At least you're thinking at some point that could happen. Um, so you're doing all the little extreme thing, not become too attached to anything um, because you're going to go through that uh, phase. Um, but you never prepare for it. There's nothing in the world you could do to be prepared for what that experience is like. Uh, the first thing, you know, I knew I didn't want to stay in the street. You know, I knew it was over because I did everything I thought I could to get away anyway. So it was nothing else I could come up with that I could, you know, be slick or, uh, uh, maneuver around. So at that point, I, you know, it didn't work out without the, all of the drug use, all of the drug dealing. So it was, at that point, it was over for me, even being in the street. 
Um, but getting getting centers, you know, you're numb. You you have no idea what that is like. You know, you you hear it. You know, you you try and face it and deal with it. But you know, it's a minute by minute thing. You know, day by day thing, and you you just never know. Um, but for myself, it was it was the beginning of the end uh, for me. Uh, I had no idea what who I was or what I was until I got centers because that's when you start to identify with who you really are as a person, you know, what your relationships are really like in life, what your role and responsibility in life. And uh, for me, you know, like I said, I got introduced to drugs by, you know, crack by my stepdad. So I wasn't out, you know, first of all, to be a drug dealer, you know, drug, you know, I became a drug user before I became a dealer, uh, to be honest. And so it was easy for me to not want to try to, um, see me and myself in that mindset of lifestyle. Like, this was going to be a way of life for me. It was actually the beginning of when I started trying to figure out how I was going to prevent this from being the rest of my life. Uh, and when you get that type of sinners at a young age, you know, you do know that eventually you could get out. But at the end of the day, uh, you got to live, survive to make it, to get out. And uh, doing a long prison sentence is, is you know, it's, it's serious. In at what point after you went in, did you have sort of this relatively positive growth mindset? I want to prepare for a life after this. Like, is that something you started with right away or did you develop that over time? No, actually, I thought about that. I never the pride thing that I had with going to school. So the first thing I did was say, look, even though I had a GED, I said, look, I want to go back uh, and reacclimate myself to that person I were prior to me getting introduced to drugs. And so the first thing I did was enroll into the, you know, basic uh, education classes um, because I wanted to identify with that person that I was before I, you know, spent this life of getting high using drugs and eventually selling drugs. And so that was the first step. And, you know, I was able to, um, you know, use that as a buffer in my early stage of my, you know, first few months. But it gets, it gets mundane pretty fast when you realize you just, it's just basic math and English, and now you still got to do something with yourself the rest of the day in prison. Um, and so it was just that started me, and then it was you know religion too. Um, you know, I, I grew up with my stepfather; he was a you know key guy in the church and the community. So I was always you know had faith you know that I could you know turn to, and it was a great body of brothers uh, that was actually Christian brothers that was there that actually insulate you when you get to prison, especially if you're young, you know, they're going to be there to give you a hand up when you get there, give you, you know, some support. And so that was, you know, my two buffers that I had going in and uh, that, that helped me make that trans early transition. You know, it still wasn't no match for what we had to deal with on a daily basis, but yeah. you know, I had good buffers. And I come from a, a pretty supportive family too. Uh, my mother being the only child, you know, it was tough, but it was still, you know, I, I had a good bond. Uh, yeah. So I wasn't so empty, you know, when I got there. And, and, you know, you went through so many hardships before you did get there. And, you know, we have talked about you've maintained this positive attitude. And it sounds like you're saying that, you know, your religion and uh, your family are sort of what allowed you to do that. Yeah, because, you know, they wasn't part of my drug use and my drug dealing. You know, I've, like I said, you kind of try to protect those people that are close to you as much as you can. Um, so they wasn't a part of what I was doing. At least I didn't think they were, but they were very co-dependent on 
my lifestyle, but you don't see that when you're at it. You just selfish, right? Uh, and so, and so, um, yeah, they 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 were there to to give me that support. And at what point during your sentence did you decide you were going to start learning about finance? I think I, I, at some point you have to program down. So when you get in those high security institutions, you have to take these courses in class in order to program where you can get like the ultimate what everybody want to go to as a federal prison camp. And so you have to take these courses in order to program out and you have to be, be below 10 years. So um, at the point, you know, you know that eventually you're going to, you don't know that you think you're eventually going to get there to the, the chance that you can go. So you start taking those courses. And it was a counselor um, that I signed up for uh, intro to finance course um, and an angle management course, right? So you have to choose two. And so he came in and said, look, I'm, you know, it was about six or seven of us in the room. And he said, look, I'm going to, um, if I'm going to teach you something, give you guys something, I'm going to give you something that I would use on the street. And he brought us the course Rich Dad, Poor Dad um, and by Robert Kiyosaki. And, you know, just showed that, you know, what the poor middle class don't know about money that the rich, rich do. And so uh, one of the courses, you know, throughout that course, it just showed me that, you know, I had no idea about money. I had no idea about finance. I was in the street and hustling, and, and I had I, I didn't know what to do with the money other than count it. You know what I mean? I mean it's illegal. You couldn't take it to the bank. You know, you can't go get anybody to help you with it, right? Uh, and so I knew then at some point that I I was a byproduct of economic ex- exclusion because again, you know, you're you can get the education, you still ain't gonna get the opportunity. You know, in the communities, you know, when you challenge, you know. Um, and so I started just reading, you know, his books and everything he referred us to and anything I could get my hands on after that. And, uh, simultaneously, I noticed that while I was there, there was other groups that was actually studying and reading majority only business material. Right. And so while I would read this and read about these communities, then I would look over and sell next door and I would see guys who actually coming from the business community to, you know, federal prison. And so I started putting two in together. I was like, wow. So if I'm reading the book about this community and these guys are already here, so I started reading and then I started networking, right? Uh, and, and so it became to be, uh, you know, an opportunity for me to really, really, you know, learn and get some hands-on experience from guys who actually had the experience that I was reading and learning about. It. So um, I got a very unorthodox intro uh, to find that. It's thoughtful of you to have, you know, learned and networked with those individuals and, um, you know, trying to learn the the business from people that had been there, uh, despite where they ended up. And, um, you know, I, I'm curious, like how, tell me about the time from when you were focused on finance to, to when you eventually were able to leave prison. I'll share with you an uh, interesting part about the group of guys that I was able to study. And I moved around. I was in four or five different federal institutions. So, you you know, you got to find a community everywhere you go. Uh, but particularly, uh, I noticed that uh, also I had this fear early on that if I'm, if I'm serving a long prison sentence now, and eventually uh, I could spend the rest of my life in this environment, right? So the first thing you do is trying to fix that initial problem that you have from, you know, being a drug user to drug dealer, and now you serving a long prison center, which is so easy to end up, you know, right back in the same environment when you get out, and now you're back in prison for the rest of your life. 
Uh, in this case, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with an opportunity that I'm even going to possibly make it out this time, possibly just, you know, from the sentence wise. Um, and so you think about that you can overcome not wanting to do what you did to get here. And the first thing people tell you, if you can sell drugs, you can run a business, right? And so you start thinking that, okay, well, I got to get out and I'm going to start to be a part of a business. In reality, I'm starting to see business people come to prison. So I'm like, wow, and they're not black. So I'm like, you know, so it's kind of get, you know, kind of get a little bit discouraging because you're thinking that that was the one thing that you could hang your hat on every day to say, look, I'm not going to be a drug dealer, drug user. I'm going to go out and I'm going to, you know, start a business. So you're already limited because you can't get education, you know, while you're there. Now you're starting to see that more people that don't look like you that's coming from the business community. And then I realized how easy it is for, you know, for, for people to end up in, in prison, you know. Um, and so, so at that point, it just made me want to lock in and start really, really um, focusing on getting some fundamentals in place so that I could, you know, navigate and network at the same time. And after how many years were you released? Actually, I served 12. 12 years. You served 12 um, years. Yeah. And so this was, man, is it? You know, and I've been out long as I've, I was in. And, you know, and I can only think about uh, people who don't have, and that's what's so great about us working together. You know, I think about, you know, what I did know and what's the chance of someone ever coming into the knowledge and understanding of what they can know to prevent themselves from being in that situation or to find their way once they're in there. So having this opportunity is extremely great for me. It's probably the highlight of my entire career um, for the purposes that we come from these different communities and we're, we're finding a way to, you know, be together on people out of answer. And you think about it, you don't realize that you, you are part of the solution. You know, you can find these problems in every household, but together, collectively, we're, we're part of the solution. And so that the time of prison was, was I mean, it was long, it was daunting. It was, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's serious. It, you know, you don't think of how serious it is when you're, before you get there, when you're there but when you think about that this can become repetitive in your life that's when you really start to pay attention that hey if i ended up there as a teenager right in my young stage in life and you don't get all these things right in life and now you're more vulnerable to that again uh in any aspect of your life so it kind of you know forced me to want to begin with these moments in mind even during then you know during that time so yes yeah, it's, it's a long time you know 12 years and um, it became to be uh, just a, a great motivator, you know, at the same time, because you think, you know, if I didn't go through that, then I wouldn't be where we are now. And then, you know, so many other people could benefit from what we're doing now. I mean, it's a great perspective to take. And it's it's great that you're able to take that perspective that, you know, you can learn from the experience and it can take you where you are now. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people would come out jaded. So I think it's it's really impressive that you feel that way. And um, certainly something others should take as an example. And, um, you know, I'm curious, you know, you, you learned a lot of finance while you were inside. What was your sort of first move when you got out? Well, actually, uh, trading, you know, I didn't know how long it was. I had sat so long in, in prison. I thought it was easy sitting at a desk, uh, watching a computer screen. You know, I thought that would be nothing. Right. But when that door is not locked, it's kind of hard, you know, to, 
to sit there. You want to see the world, right? And so, you know, trading was was first, and you know, I wanted to do some more hands-on things. Went to from there, um, you know, the market had all of those challenges. So I got out in two thousand and eight, and we that's when we had the crash, right? Uh, gee, right? So I'm like, man, I got my whole life built up for this moment, right? For these opportunities and hear the whole bottom go out, right? And so, you know, yeah, so that was first. And, um, so at that point in time, I said, well, look, I got to, I got to diversify this finance thing and went from there, real estate and car, trucking. So I just kind of bounced around and consulting. And at, at some point I knew after seeing exactly what was going on in society with the criminal justice system, uh, I knew then I owed the community that I actually damaged, you know, in a lot of ways. And so I, I could not just be successful doing finance. And it wasn't in a way in the relations to the community that actually, you know, I took it took advantage of. I'll say that. And then when you decided, you know, you needed to go and back and help the community, you know, where, what did you do? You know, were you living in South Carolina through all of this? Did you move around? Yeah, I've been in South Carolina the whole time I've been on, you know, consulting work. So I'm all over the place for the most part. Um, but the funny part um, is that I actually started um, an organization called the Channel for Change Initiative when I realized that, look, it's an initiative that you got to take. And it's a challenge to take that initiative for change, right? And so it kind of became more of a self-help, self-therapy type of effort for me um, because I wanted to find a way to communicate to people because I knew what it's like to, you know, be a suspect. And so a lot of these uh, situations that have been going on in the media had a lot to do with people um, trying to learn about what it's like to be that suspect, even though you haven't done anything wrong or you may not be the target, you know, for whatever's going on. But if you still don't know how to de-escalate that situation uh, with law enforcement, you know, it, it, it only poses a bigger problem because even in, you know, excluded communities, you're not, you don't see law enforcement the way that people who are part of their community see them, right? And so you police your own community, you know, so if you're not dealing with the issue, you don't know how to deal with somebody from the outside who come in to deal with that issue, right? Uh, and so I knew I owed the young people, you know, like myself, you know, what that experience was like from my from my point of view. And so I started the nonprofit and I knew I had actually wrote the books while I was in. Actually, I forgot about them because I had so much going on that I said, well, look, I got to publish the books to let people know I do know something about this subject matter. So my books became like my resume and my business card, right? And so I went with the nonprofit and the, the books into the community to get support and help. Uh, and it was a challenge, you know, I didn't know how much, you know, how, how, how daunting the task for criminal justice inform. Well, I started with reform and I said, well, look, I got to change it to inform, right? Because nobody really wanted to touch that subject. Uh, when I went out into the community, I had no idea that everything was pro law enforcement. Everything was pro system, like just call the cops, just call the police. And I was like, wow, like, yo, nobody got a chance at fixing these issues because they probably got more than enough going on as we speak, right? And so now you send law enforcement to a community who don't have a relationship with them, right? And then the community that they're going into uh, are not you know, in a position where they can de-escalate the situation because they probably got more than just that situation that they're dealing with. And so everything is already at the head when they come into each other. So I thought that we could be, you know, proactive about being 
prevention, you know, we can give ourselves an opportunity to address this issue. And that's why it was so important when I saw what you do and what you've been doing. I mean, it's just been such a great motivation for me because, again, uh, it, you don't see a lot of people, you know, with platforms like yourself actually, you know, spearhead, you know, inform opportunity, inform campaigns. It's mostly most people reacting when things happen. If you're enjoying this episode, I would greatly appreciate if you could review, like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platforms. Your engaged support goes a long way in helping the show grow and getting our impactful guests heard. Now back to the show. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. And um, yeah, I mean, just knowing the hardships that happen within the criminal justice system, knowing how disproportionately um, our laws have been enforced, uh, especially racially over the years, has certainly been a motivator for me, you know, having um, grandparents that survived the Holocaust. And, you know, it's always been just the idea of certain groups being marginalized and the idea of certain groups just getting focused on and um, not being able to live free lives is just really sickens me. So it just motivated me to get involved in in criminal justice reform. I think that our system is, is such a mess and there's so many people inside that don't need to be. And there's so much potential in all of these people that we're letting go to waste. Um, and meanwhile, the system itself is not rehabilitative as it should be, um, as, it, as it is in places like Scandinavia. And so I think, you know, we've certainly got a lot of work to do. And um, I think it's amazing to have met you and um, you're an incredible shiny example to people that you know are put into situations that lead them inside that can come out and have a better life it's inspiring and i hope that you continue to inspire others well thank you and i i would be honest and tell you i didn't really see myself as an opportunity with helping others i just knew that yeah i wanted to help myself because uh, even through those experiences, you still got to keep going. You know, nobody's empathizing, sympathizing with you, you know, and I appreciate what you're sharing. Because, again, you know, when I started reading Dr. King, I had no idea that, you know, his civil rights was actually inspired by communities that ne didn't necessarily look like him. You know, and then, you know, I started gunning the ruin, and then I started looking around the world. And, uh, you know, even coming to when I, you know, rushed out for help in the community, you know, one of the first people I you know, went online. I actually went on LinkedIn and met Vincent Cole, uh, who's an Irish civil rights activist and grew up on the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King, inspired by the Irish and the British um, troubles. And, you know, told me that he was inspired by, you know, Dr. King. Dr. And I'm like, wow, I don't think I ever heard a white person said he was inspired by a black person in my life. Like, I never saw that. You know, I'm from a town where it's only 1,100 people. Uh, we have, you know, relationships, but for the most part, to say a whole community or country that actually got inspiration from the black community, I said, man, I wonder how that would look if every young black male uh, or female around the country understood that they've inspired people, you know, around the world. And Vincent even shared with me, he said, look, you know, and me and the British can look alike. So y'all have a, you know, y'all can address what you're dealing with. We don't even know who our enemies are at times, right? And so... It, it just, you know, made me relate to what you're saying. And when I did start looking at, you know, what any community go through when they're dealing with, you know, exclusion um, and all the names that we can call, man, my heart goes out to it, you know, and, and I knew it at some point. And I, I go back and I identify what I did. I try not to make myself out to be anybody special. But, you know, I go back, you know, and looking at, you know, just the part of me playing, even though I use drugs and part of me dealing the drugs. And I think, you know, to be in prison, and I read about Dr. King, and he being locked up, 
you know, you know, for just protesting. I mean, you know, speaking out. For, I mean, you know, you can call it for what it is. I mean, we're not in the, you know, we're not the best of everything that we make ourselves out to be. You know, we have the best of opportunity, though. I'll, I'll say we primitive. You know, I'll take it to say that, look, you know, I'll say we develop, you know, in some aspect, but in other areas in terms of humanitarian uh, opportunity, we're primitive. We haven't even started, you know, what it really takes to 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 realize that, you know, your your neighbor, the children is just like your own. So I, I, I can, I feel it. And I sense it. And being in federal prison, you know, you meet people from all different walks of life. And when there's a food strike, when there's a riot, when there things go down, I mean, you, you're there together. You know, you you know, you got to try to look for that, you know, that whatever little thing you could get to help each other out. You know, at some point, you know, I mean, certain places you go is, is really racially divided, you know, you know, but that's anywhere. But for the most part, you know, when the storms really come, you need to stick together. You know, you need to come together to try to fix it. So I can empathize. I, I really feel what you what you're sharing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And um, you know, certainly you're an inspiration to many. And um, you know, since you first saw that, I think there's there's obviously been tons of black people that have been tremendously impactful and inspiring. And so um, you know, appreciate all the effort that you've gone through to get where you are and um, you know, you mentioned your books were kind of like your calling card, you know, showing that you know what you're talking about. Um, and I know you mentioned, you know, writing Finding Me while you were inside. Um, I believe you have two other books as well as a screenplay. Can you tell me how those came about and just a little bit about them? Yeah, I didn't write to be a writer. Like I said, the story is happening and I wrote them for more of a coping thing. So the love's journey to roll less travel was a teenager. That was just a hot young male, you know, being separated from the world. So that's the whole imaginary thing that you can come up with to cope with being incarcerated, right? In your twenties and your thirties and then you may, you know, may not never see those dates. Well you're not gonna see them again in your life, right? So I did everything I could do with that one. Uh and finding me of course that was that was when things started to get really serious for me while I was incarcerated. And I started realizing I was bitter. But I had to channel it somewhere, so I wrote it because I realized how people around the world would know I could actually be in this situation, but I didn't know until I got here. And so it made me feel, you know, I, I was better felt excluded, and so I wrote it, um, and then, um, you know, I published those two, and after this, you know, my journey in finance and the people I've connected with, the places I've been, you know, with Vincent, you know, starting with the international community, uh, and, you know, Bloomberg, the United Nations, uh, Global Private Equity Conference, even as a late super return. So it had been a journey. So I wrote Wall Street Bond, the urban renaissance, because I wanted to show the urban community, you know, how money, you know, somewhat moves out here in society because we're not in those rooms. We're not part of that conversation. And so I wrote it because it's, you know, something happened to me. I wanted them to at least be introduced to, you know, the financial markets and, uh, I started my company again, Gig Group, um, so that I could actually uh, be a fund that would actually invest alongside these institutional investors and other funds out here, so they can kind of earn while they learn. You know, we could be visible, be fully transparent to get them opportunity to learn how finance really work as we network too. Um, so that was a, a big deal for me. Um, and um, the screenplay came, you know, after connecting um, with Clay. Uh, because he was a keynote speaker for all Los Angeles County Correctional Institutions. And uh, him, his upbringing with Quentin Tarantino, and I knew he could identify with our community, and he instantly did. He taught you know, a lot in the criminal justice system out there. So 
I was able to get the screenplay written, um, you know, which was part of the marketing I wanted to do. So not only my story, but my company, I will be visible, will give access to the financial market because it lands on Wall Street. It's a really inspirational story from, you know, about my life, inspired by my life and, you know, show what each, what we're doing now and funny part, we're making a movie, making a movie, you know, and, and this is part of it. I mean, I, I, I can just be honest with you. This is, you know, this is the movie for me. You know, this is the journey. Um, and so that screenplay, No Right Way, we got, you know, like yourself, executive producer on it. We got David Will, uh, former vice chairman of the NASDAQ, um, who chaired the Jobs Act um, with uh, President Obama signed into law and legislation. Um, so we have, you know, key people. Uh, we just, again, uh, got Anthony, him and Will on the project with us, who's the producer, director, directed The Wire, Empire, Red Tails, um, so genius with, with Aretha Franklin. So we have the, the, the people that we want to work with on the uh, production now to, to, to move things forward and to move this story and this whole effort into mainstream media, mainstream uh, community so that those people who are maybe sitting on the sideline who don't know that they could be a part of what we're doing to become part of it. And so we're doing two things at one time. Uh, so I'm introducing people to finance with my company, you know, for an investment opportunity, just so that they can learn and be a part of the networking community who are actually uh, changing communities all over the world by, you know, with the way they're investing in those communities. So if you can, you know, educate yourself and kind of arm yourself, you can attract those investments. And, and then, you know, I can, I'll quote one of the comments I've seen just not so long ago said, first, you're a product of your community. I, I've always agreed with that statement. And he took a few more seconds and then he said, then your product, your community is a product of you. So, you know, I, I understand the first part. That was up to me being almost 50, right? So so now it's about time that I make my uh, community uh, a product, of, a byproduct of who I am now. So, um so I'm thankful to, to have the opportunity to to work with the people who 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 have become part of what we're doing. Yeah, I mean it's 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 awesome to see the platform that you've built for yourself and um, you know the opportunities that you've been able to give others and um, you know t I would love to learn a little bit more about Gig Group and what you guys do. I know you mentioned a little bit already, but uh, you started it in 2012. What was its origin and how has it evolved? I, I started because I actually. Um, wanted it to be just for what we're doing now you know it's strictly for entertainment so i it, it was never exposed and it was built for this built for this opportunity um, my ultimate goal was to funny thing was to create uh was to was was to have a co-branded debit card right so i wanted to put a co-branded debit card in the every young person hand because i wanted a financial marketplace where they could go and as they do their financial transactions they would actually learn about how finance works so it was, it's, it's more built for prevention because that, you know, once you learn about finance, then you kind of see the true value that you have. You know, you'd rather make 60000 with your life on the street than pay somebody 60000 to watch you in prison, right? And so, and so my marketplace will be partnered with people who will help us and help them integrate themselves into the financial market as a means of prevention from the economic side. At the same time, I'll partner with people who are working in the space to teach them criminal justice prevention. So Gig Group has been built just for this opportunity. Uh, it was nothing else I wanted to do with it 
other than to use it as an opportunity to educate people on how markets really work, how investing really works. Got it. Well, that's a great thing to teach people, you know, certainly a wonderful motivator and something that can change lives. I mean, even for myself, you know, obviously coming from a very different background, but also in South Carolina, like I, one of the only classes from high school that I think back to is a finance class that I had senior year where just a lot of the basics I know of financial, you know, how to operate became from that class. And I still think back to it. And, you know, for better or worse, I don't necessarily think back to the random 10th grade English class. But um, I, I do think about Mr. Murrah's finance class my senior year. And um, I think it's lost in our society. You know, we're not teaching young people enough how to handle finances. And meanwhile, our economy is drastically changing all the time, too. So I think, you know, it's so helpful to give young people the tools that they need to sort of operate in our world and our economy. Yeah, you, you, you have to know it early when you're young. So it becomes second nature to you. Uh, and because we're in a space where um, everything is digital, you know, we're in that we could be in that space together. Um, we got access to everybody like globally. We can be all over the world at the same time. Right. Uh, and so, but you could be in a community and you don't even you don't understand how an institution works. I'll, I'll share that. That was more of what my uh, initial motivation was starting out. And then I uh, realized that, you know, before you can help someone else, you have to help yourself. And I realized I was able to get in certain spaces that uh, the subject wasn't quite social yet at the time so i feel like you know i just need to keep going and the more i keep going you know eventually you know we could be where we are and that's the funny thing like we're right there i mean this is, if, if i was to try to explain it in a way it wouldn't work like it was intended for everything to happen the way that it's happening like and if i were to try to change the story try to make it about me instead of about it would not be you know what it really is it wouldn't be true to it and the, the help have come, and that's the great part about it. And you, you mentioned gig group, you know, and what my inspiration was and where we are in that space. You know, I even have a, a more material that, you know, through my company that we can source uh, from, you know, writer like Clay. You know, that, what's the chance of that even happening, you know, in in our society, you know, to connect with someone who's iconic, who, you know, even rent for, you know, with Keanu Reeves, um, for someone who haven't been in this space, and to work with him, you know, so I think this is it. I think it's, it's right here where we are. I think it's who we are. And, and then we connect and, you know, you being from Charleston and, you know, your family and the work you've done in the community, so reputable, well-known, well-respected. And to see you're doing in the film space and to see what you're doing and that read the podcast, like people are asking, I'm like, wow, like, I'm, you know what I'm saying? Because you wouldn't, like, you wouldn't go, you go all around the world to think that you got to go somewhere else to solve what you think you want to address. And if, if, if someone right there in that same space is working in that way and being, you know, effective and efficient. And, and, and so I, I would honestly say that there's no other way to speak about it. I, I think the time is now, I think is in us now. Um, I do know that to leave it on a kid to go out in the community to pull themselves up out of something that I, I'm, I'm learning later in life as well. So uh, I have to look at the, Young people, you know, as if though where I was when I was at the age in life and, you know, you feel like you're indestructible, you know, the rules are the last thing, 
You know, being transparent is the last thing. And now they got access to more information, you know, more influence than ever. And we have to be mindful that that's the opportunity they're going to take. And we can put something out that they can become part of, I think, just as inspirational and don't have those elements, but it addresses those elements. Yeah, 100%. And I'm excited to continue working together on on No Right Way, you know, to so the audience is aware, you know, we're relatively early stages. We have a, a draft that we're editing right now that's in a really good spot. And we, we brought on Anthony Hemingway to direct and produce, who's going to be incredible. And, you know, we're going to do everything we can to to get this project made. You know, it's going to take some time, but, uh, you know, really excited to help get your story out there. Yeah, and again, that, that's, that, that's why it's our story. You know what I mean? Just what you said, I, I, I think also you add the, the part of, you know, things being contemporary, you know, I think that bringing it up to speed with where we are now, uh, you know, minimum biopic, you know, uh, is, is really huge for me because it, it shows all of the, the, the influence and the elements that makes the story. Then this part is visible, just as visible, parallel with the story. Uh, even you know maybe you know I, I've been bidding you to get a cameo in it as well, right? Uh, and so I want to you know I just think that it's so many intricate pieces that have been so instrumental in the story. Why not, man? Why not? Why not chart that that yeah. that angle that it have given us to to really you know put a stamp on and and again to give South Carolina you know in the world. And I yeah. just say South Carolina because you know some of it's based here, but I would love to. To, to, to get that global element. We got Vincent Cole, like I said, that plays such an instrumental piece. And I think the great part about this story is that people can see themselves in it. I think in wherever community you're coming from, I think you can identify with it. And I think that makes it more important, make it more relevant. I think it more inclusive. And I, I do know it'd be really efficient in, in, in the communities because you know they're dealing with these subjects in and out every day. And there's so many people also I like to look at the people who went through the system and, you know, that are part of, I think we all affect and touch in some aspect of our lives. We can identify with it, but you also want to empower those people who've been in the system that can help in their communities and identify with what they've been going through, have went through. And so it's not socially unacceptable to, to share people with your experience was because you think about it and you know, I look at your story and, you know, the, 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 the statement, you know, made from your father and, you know, that's what we want to do, you know, as, as parents, give our kids those pieces that they can build their place in life with, you know, and have that connectivity to our lives and it be an extension for what they want to do with their lives. So I, I find that other guys who had similar experiences, because, again, some of the key guys who, who influenced my life early on gave me, you know, that momentum to sustain. And I think we yeah. overlook that coping system. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, that's so important. And speaking of, you know, empowering and influencing and inspiring younger people um, throughout your time, have you had anyone that's been a particularly impactful mentor to you? Yeah, sure. I'm sure. Um, one of my really close friends, Paul Tate, he's, you know, he's, he's an elder in the community and it's been a hard subject. You know, he went to school and graduated you know, college in the 70s. And so, you know, we have, you know, 15, 20 year age difference in um, just us, you know, going through communicating, you know, with this subject back and forth, you know, over the years. It's been been a great mentor personally and professionally. So, yeah, I've had that um, 
now more so than ever in my life. You know, first you want to stay excluded. You kind of want to stay out the way. You know, be you know you don't want to be. You've been around people all you know so long, so much. And you get out. You want to have that space. But in this particular case, you you definitely need somebody to hold your hand to to help yeah. get you through. You know, challenging times out here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's a lot to learn out there, a lot the world will throw at you. So any ammo you can have going in is super helpful. And um, yeah, if you'd like, uh, now's the point where you can ask me a question. Yeah. I, you know, I look at what you're doing with your podcast and, you know, not why you started, but to you doing out here what was so instrumental in my life when I was inside. Uh, how do it feel to take in, you know, uh, someone else's world and then have the opportunity to re-communicate that to other people across the space? Because you take it in, but then you got to become part of that world in order to get other people to help identify with that. What What's that experience is like? Because I take all in. I don't get a chance to give out. It's all about me, right? And so it's the opposite with you. And I try to feel, you know, I think about that because I watch all of the shows that you do and everybody got a world in itself. And you yeah. get a chance to experience all of those worlds. And then you have to, you have a lot of patience as well because you have to have a lot of patience knowing that somebody else don't know something that you do. And then you you get a chance to, you know, What does that feel like when you when you get a chance to give give to the world, give back? Yeah, I mean, uh, thank you. You know, it's certainly been awesome getting to do this podcast, getting to learn some of these stories. And you know, initially the concept was I I've been meeting all these tremendous people doing amazing things. How can I help get their stories out there? And also, like, how did they become these people that are driven to do this? That are given to driven to give back. So, you know, I take each interview as a learning experience. You know, for myself as well as for the audience. You know, I, I want to know how this person became who they are, what drives them to be, you know, and do what they do. And um, it, it's great to have a platform to share that with the world. I think that, like you're saying, you know, seeing sort of the intricacies within each life, just, I don't know, I think it gives us all a different perspective. And for me, just always tries to make me self-aware of other people's perspectives in certain um situations. And yes, I'm honored to be able to share these stories with the world and hope that, you know, even if they change one life, um, just by hearing the story, which, you know, I've been fortunate to get a couple of uh, comments like that. Um, it just, it just goes such a long way. And I, I hope to be able to grow the platform so that we can get these stories out to more and more people. But it, uh, it's something that I both, you know, enjoy and feel honored to do. And I learn an incredible amount from. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for the opportunity. And more so, I think uh, the person that your platform helped you become that is not enough of you. You know, you you know, is is you, but it's not enough for you. But at the same time, I think uh, the more people hear that, people are the answer. I I think that you know, it made me think more and more about it as we built up to the show, and I got more and more excited about it. Then I, I you know, I thought about listening to the other podcasts and stuff, and I just thought about you know, when we get a chance to reflect. You know, we can identify with any other person. You know, and I think that's where our saving grace is when we don't identify with other people and we think that that pain is their pain. I'll tell you something I did here one time. A guy, while I was inside, said, He said two things in in this life. One thing, people can't see your dreams. 
and they can't feel your pain. And so it makes me feel so honored to be share things that you do and people you do it with because I know that we have to do it together in order for it to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think speaking of, you know, an opportunity to reflect, uh, I think it very much provides that for whoever I'm interviewing. You know, a lot of people don't take the time to pause and think about where they are and how they got there. And so I think some of the people walk away being a pre more appreciative of themselves. And I think, you know, loving and caring for yourself is so important to success. Um, so I like to think that I'm giving somebody a little bit of space to think about all of the work that it's taken to get them where they are. Well, that's a master class. That's the, that's, the, that's the course right there. I think that, you know, people are answering. and I think you can find your answer in that. And I think that what you're doing is a way that we all can identify with where we are, how we got to be where we are. And I think you can take those moments to think. Um, I think in that space, you can not only become more of a better person, you can become more of an effective person in any space that you're in as well. So I, I think uh, I'd like to share, I'd like to, to, to get more involved with what you do and how you do it to, so that other people can have the same opportunity. You know, it stopped me in my tracks to think about, yeah, we're going to do this. But what's really happening now is that everybody could take these, this time to do what we're doing here. And I, I think if we can find a way to share that with people, I think it would be great help too as well. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting perspective. Appreciate you sharing it. And, um, you know, I've only got a couple more for you. The first one being, you know, aside from family, if everything were to end tomorrow, you know, whatever that means to you, what are you most grateful for or most proud of? Then I did not give up. You know, I, I'm so grateful that I didn't, you know, I didn't quit, you know, in the daunting moments, you know, the fears, I faced them, you know, and I'm just thankful that, you know, I didn't allow those fears to force me to retreat, you know, the rejections and, you know, the lack of support, those things, you know, I feel really honored and great that, you know, I personally was able to, to, to face them and to, to continue to go and grow from, you know, I didn't see them as a learning opportunity for me then, but they became the most inspirational and instrumental pieces and places in my life was those things that was not just a green light, you know, but that yellow light caused me to to get better, to, to find another way and to, to get more motivated. So I'm just thankful that I just didn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thankful for that as well. And, um, so the big one that I make sure to ask everybody, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? Uh, I, I, I would say discretionary discrimination because we don't know a lot of times we discriminate, you know, we think we're just not, um, we're not sympathizing with someone or empathizing with someone. When I say discretionary discrimination, it puts us in that space where if it's not us, then it don't affect us. It's not our problem. And I think when we choose to discriminate, Using that discretion, I think we fail ourselves and we fail our society. I, I'll give you a quick story about something that that highlights this for me. Uh, I was in a camp and it was a guy came in from a well-to-do community. Uh, he had gangrene in every aspect of his body because he, he'd been so wealthy so long. He ate the best food, drank the best wine, smoked cigars his whole life. I mean, like, and he was probably early 50s, but, you know, you can tell he had done 
everything he could do with his life in that time span, right? And he was okay with that. So he came in, oxygen tank and everything else, and barely could breathe. And, you know, so, of course, if you're in, a, in an institution and somebody passes, you know, they're going to investigate it because they take away your visits and all those other things while you investigate the death. And so, but in that space, nobody wants to lose the visits and lose all freedom. So everybody kind of catered to the person who needed any help. So if you need any kind of food, water, medicine, anything, we just trying to help. So this individual was able to, you know, after a few weeks, sit up, you know, on his bunk and eventually we got him outside where he was able to get some sun and start getting life into, you know, back into his body. And, you know, the first good chance he could start talking, he said, listen, if they were going to send me to prison, at least they should have sent me where to one where my peers were. And so everybody looked around and was like, we are your peers, bro. Like, this is, this is it. You know, he was like, well, he thought that he would have went somewhere that would have been more, I would say white collar or whatever the case was, like, you know, whether it's uh, this kind of crime or that crime, bro, when you're, you're here, we're all one, we're the same, right? And, you know, so after, you know, he did his time, you know, three months went by, he was able to walk, and, you know, six months went by, now he's on the track, he got, you know, functionality in every aspect of his body. 18 months, he's actually running the track now, so he he's back like it, like he never went down in his life, right? And so it came time for him to leave, and he, he was just so connected with everybody. That, you know, it was almost like, he's like, I'm going to leave, but, you know, a part of what has transpired in this environment is a part of my life now. And so I think that those are the things that I always look at is that you never know what someone else is going through or dealing with until you put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. And that experience and these experiences, the ones that, Help me identify with that. And so that's why I like the movie Crash. Uh, I, I watch Crash because it, it just gives me those moments that I can see somebody else in a situation that you don't think you'll be in. But then if you was in that situation, you probably would handle it sort of the way they do. It may not just be a good. So I try to, you know, always think about uh, when I choose to um, discriminate. And when yeah. I think about the discretionary discrimination that we're picking and choosing what we are, um, what we get engaged in and who we allow to fight those fight these battles on their own. So I, I always follow what you do and I can appreciate you doing it and I can kind of see the I see the genius in it. I, I appreciate that. And um, that was certainly an interesting story. And it's incredible to hear how his perspective changed because of the situation that he was forced into. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I always keep that in mind. And, and that helps me go across the aisle to people, too, because sometimes they may not even know. So if something is not happening, you don't leave it for that person who may not know. But at least if you can engage that person, you know, you give them that opportunity. You know, and I think that makes us better as a person, as a community as well. Absolutely. And, you know, it's been great having you on the show and learning about your story. And I'm sure others are as inspired by you as I am. You know, how can people listening support you and your impact? I think we, where we are right now, I know, you know, following and sharing and interacting us with on social media, because uh, we're all in that global space. We can do more online than we possibly can do physically right where we are. So sharing what we're doing, participating in what we're doing, support the people who support us. Um, we're, you know, early stage as a company, you know, we're, we're about to make things more visible. 
again, like you said, where we are in the early stage with the project, with the rewrite, you know, things to get things in a better perspective in terms of the script. Uh, we're in a good place in terms of uh, the team that we're having, that we're building. Um, you know, we want to be, you know, good, good steward of, of support. So, you know, just want to be calculated about how we, you know, get people involved and from what aspect. But for the most part, we try to be as visible as we can be and transparent on social media. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to share uh, all those links with the audience. And, um, you know, thanks so much for sharing your story. I can't wait for us to, you know, bring it to the screen um, and share that with the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be amazing. Again, you know, I tell you, man, we're making the movie, making the movie. So I, I think if we can start engaging some of the small things, you know, amongst ourselves, I think it's going to be monumental. It's equal as monumental uh, as the film. So I, I don't take these opportunities for granted. I don't take none of the, nothing that we're doing for granted because I can tell you um, it's exciting. It's exciting to see because I, I can also look at where things come from. You know, and I can see where we are now, and it just it just makes the the moments they get grander and grander. You know, every day, every, you know they're they're getting bigger and better, and almost as if I say, look, if I don't make a movie about making a the movie, then I'll miss the movie because these are the opportunities that you want people to know about. You know, so I appreciate this opportunity. I appreciate you sharing all that you do, the team of people that you work with. You know, I think it's monumental. Uh, I know we'll be able to, you know, go great place and do great things. And, you know, there, there are people in places right now that are being inspired by everything we're doing, you know, and every, everything we're, 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 we're going to do is just going to, I think it's going to be transcending for a lot of people in, in places and spaces that they're in. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for your time and uh, look forward to talking again soon and to sharing your story. Well, thank you, brother. I look forward to it. And again, uh, read for the script because again, uh, I told Anthony, you know, I only want, you know, two things from the whole project. Uh, that's you and David. So uh, I, I hope we can transcend that cameo thing into real life. And I, I, that would be that would be the highlight of everything for me. So, yeah, let, let's just keep fighting for that. Yep, I'm up for it. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.